Hi, thank you for joining us on one of the most comprehensive podcasts devoted exclusively to family offices, Family Office World. I'm your host, Ron Diamond, Chairman and CEO of Diamond Wealth. We represent 100 single family offices ranging in size from $250 million to $30 billion. I've been the keynote speaker at dozens of family office conferences around the globe and have spoken at over 150 family office conferences in the past five years. I'm in the process of writing a book on family offices and have consulted with dozens of firms who want to work with family offices, including banks, accounting firms, law firms, philanthropies, and various service providers who want to know what it takes to get in the door and then add value to the family office community. I serve on the board at Stanford University and teach courses in their graduate business school, engineering school, and entrepreneurship program. I chair the Chicago chapter of Tiger 21, the investment group for enhanced results with 750 members worldwide, representing assets in excess of $75 billion. And I serve as the chairman of the advisory board for four privately held companies, as well as serving on the advisory board for six public and privately held companies. Family Office World takes you deep into the inner workings of family offices. Each episode will have a different expert who works closely with family offices. Our goal is twofold. One, help family offices become more institutionalized and connect with each other directly throughout the country. And two, help service providers navigate the best way to add value and ultimately have family offices as clients. Please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. I'm thrilled to have Dr. Robert Pearl as my guest today. Dr. Pearl is the former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest medical group, and former president of the Mid-Atlantic Permanente Medical Group. In these roles, he has led 10,000 physicians, 38,000 staff, and was responsible for the nationally recognized medical care of 5 million Kaiser Permanente members on the West and East Coast. Dr. Pearl was named one of Modern Health's 50 most influential physician leaders. Pearl is an advocate for the power of integrated, prepaid, technologically advanced, and physician-led healthcare delivery. Based on where we are in the world, I could not think of a more appropriate person to have on as a guest. So, uh, Dr. Pearl, thank you very much for joining us today. Good morning, Ron. It's my pleasure to be here. I look forward to our conversation. All right. So... I'm watching the news and I see, you know, we've got 127,000 people have died. Um, this coronavirus uh, has brought our economy to its knees. Um, you know, we represent a lot of family offices and this is a family office program, but this will, this will transcend family offices because while the family offices are looking to see what's going on and how they're going to invest and they look at things from a longer term perspective, um, this impacts everybody. So my first question to you is the most basic. Where are we in the current pandemic? As you point out, Ron, understanding the coronavirus is essential for every American, but particularly for these, those listening in with family businesses, who are going to be making decisions about their own health, about the health of others, and trying to understand what's going to happen to the American economy. I like to begin with the fact that on January the 7th, the New York Times was the first publication to report 56 patients 
in Wuhan, China, with a new disease. Two months later, early March, the United States became aware of what was happening and started to take action. And on March the 12th, the WHO declared it a pandemic. Between March and now, nothing has changed about this virus. It's exactly the same as it was. The virus is consistent. People are completely inconsistent and often irrational. We made decisions in March with the exact same set of facts that exist today, but today we're making completely different choices. And as we've seen, from the results of the Memorial Day weekend in Southern California, the decisions in Texas and Florida, the virus taking off. It was predictable. You know, people talk about, Ron, about a second wave. There's no second wave. This is just this virus. This virus has what's called an R naught of three. One person infected in the normal circumstances will give it to three others. The problem with a virus that has that kind of transmissibility you see exponential growth. One gives it to three, three to nine, nine to 27, and so on. That's what we saw in March. That's why we sheltered in place. And now in June and July, the same factors are happening. Let me ask you, a I'm sorry, let me ask you a question then. You know, we can't, just shutting the economy down, the scientists will say, okay, let's just shut this down for X number of months. I think that's a very hard thing to do. So how do you balance the health risks, taking into consideration, putting on your business person's hat too? Because this is not, let's just shut everything down for six months. That won't work. How do you balance those? Absolutely right, Ron. You know, I teach at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and the Stanford Medical School. And bringing those two perspectives is what is key. And I like to use what's called the Pareto Principle, 80-20 rule. What are the 20% of things that we can do to diminish the transmissibility of this virus? Not the 100%, the 20% that get us 80% of the improvement. The first thing is masks. Masks stop people from transmitting the virus when they have it. And that's particularly important with this coronavirus because people are contagious when they are asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic. The most common way that viruses spread, this virus spreads, is simply by people coughing or sneezing. This liquid material comes out of your mouth and nose and coating its outside is this virus. It lands on someone else's nose or mouth and now invades their cells. Masks diminish that in half. So what's the what's the chance in your opinion? Sorry, as far as a vaccine, because I'm 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 a lay person. I'm watching this. I'm a business person, and I'm seeing that they're doing trying to turbocharge this this cure this vaccine. What about what what do you feel about that? When's that going to happen? In your opinion? In my opinion, we are being delusional about when this vaccine will come. Let me explain a couple of reasons why for your listeners. So most vaccines like polio or measles, you take a virus, you weaken it or you kill it, and then you inject it into people. 
They respond to the entire virus. That's a very long process. The fastest it's ever happened in the history of medicine, Ron, five years. With this virus, this vaccine people are looking at is what's called an RNA. The RNA is what's inside the cells. It's like our DNA. It's slightly different. It's a single strand and a little different nucleotides, but it's basically the same. It's designed against the RNA. In the history of medicine, Ron, do you know how many times an RNA vaccine has been successful? Nope. Zero. We've never been able to make it work because it's such a subcomponent of the virus. It's not the entire virus itself. I think it's at least 12 to 18 months. It could be longer before we have a vaccine that is safe and effective. So the idea of shutting down, Ron, for two months and then seeing what happens or four months, no, we've got to have a long-term strategy that's going to protect the economy, avoid the mental health issues of social isolation, and maximally save human life. So how do you do that? So masks, six-foot distancing, wash your hands with soap and water frequently, and make available free, easy-to-access testing, not with the idea of finding everyone who might have it. There's 100,000 new infections a day. We're not going to find everyone. But letting anyone who's been exposed to someone with the disease to get themselves tested and then self-quarantine. So you want to get that R0 below 1. Because once it's below one, the virus shrinks. Above one, it expands rapidly in terms of its prevalence. You got to get it below one. The masks lower it some, the hand washing, the social distancing, your ability to self-quarantine. You put those people together, those parts together, and you add one more piece, Ron, that every business person understands, which is called segmentation, which is that the people who are dying from this are not randomly distributed. Fortunately, kids seem very, very well protected. Of the 120,000 deaths you mentioned, over 50,000 come out of nursing homes, 1.5% of the population. How do we protect those people? Almost all the deaths, 80% of the deaths come from people over the age of 80 with multiple chronic disease. How do we help those people allow the economy to go back to normal, the schools to reopen by putting in place the 20% of things that we can do that have a minimal impact and protect those at greatest risk. I think that's a prescription to be able to achieve not just physical health, but emotional health and business health. But how do you do it from a practical standpoint? So let's put on your Stanford Business School hat, not your medical school hat. Um, you know, you've got kids, 18 20 to 22, a little older. Um, they're just not, they don't get it. Um, how do you how do you implement this? How you know colleges are going to start? My daughter's a freshman at the University of Michigan. They're going to start colleges. I cannot see how an eighteen to twenty one year old is going to do what you and I probably would do. How do you do that practically? It depends upon the state you live in. Right now, I'm in the state of Connecticut, and you can't walk into a retail shop. You can't walk into a place to buy something without a mask on. It's just a state law. If on the college campus, people knew that if they didn't wear masks and disease started to become more prevalent, they were gonna shut the university down, send people home and go back to virtual learning. 
I believe with good education, leadership, truthful, honest conversation, they would wear the masks. And if they weren't going to wear it, their peers would make them wear it. We just have this fantasy notion that the virus is somehow going to disappear. And you look at the pictures from Southern California, Memorial Day weekend, people on the beaches, close to each other, without masks, sitting in place, sitting in barbecues together. What we're seeing right now, Ron, was so predictable. I'm surprised that anyone's surprised. And we're now going to see the growth in hospitalizations followed by the growth in deaths. I think you just make it standard practice. That's what we have to do. If what you're saying is we can't do it, then the answer is we are going to see this pandemic lead to deaths that are not going to be 150 or 250,000. They're going to be in the millions because that's the amount of population it will take till we get to what's called herd immunity, until 200 million Americans have had the disease and recovered, and that's somewhere five to 10 times more than today. But don't you have to, I mean, if you look at the, at the number of people who, who, who get this, um, how do you see this playing out? I mean, you're looking at people who, in certain, it's become very political. So if, if this is not a, an effort that comes from the top, from the president on down, that I could see potentially working. But what's happened, and I don't want to get too political here, um, we've got 50 different states doing 50 different things, and one state's doing something completely different than the other. Based on the fact that it looks like the president doesn't want to do it from a national standpoint, how does this play out? Very poorly. We are the laughingstock of the world right now. Uh, Europe is now not allowing Americans to come into their countries because we've not been willing to do the simple things. Now, don't get me wrong. There are much more severe, draconian things that we could be doing. If you're in South Korea and you go to a wedding, you've got to sign a book. And in the book, they have the names of every person there. And should someone come down with the coronavirus on testing, their cell phones, their data from purchases are used to find all their contacts. And South Korea is not as far from the more ex most extreme country that's out there. We're talking about the Pareto principle, the 20%. Wear a mask, keep five, six feet away, uh, be able to get easy testing and self-quarantine. These are the minimal things. And if what you're telling me, Ron, is that we don't have the courage, the political will, the leadership required, then we better understand that this will be a devastating factor in which either we will lose a lot of lives or the U.S. economy will crash. Yeah, I, I but it, yeah, I'm, I look at it and it's not, I mean, it's not going to change from the top. I mean, it, Trump has made it perfectly clear how he's going to handle this and not wearing a mask in, in public is probably not the best thing um, because he's the president and people listen to him. So if that's the case, all I look at is I'm a lay person when it comes to this. And I, the only practical solution I could see, and I'm curious on your thoughts and then I want to hear what, 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 what you think, is that we will ultimately have to um, quarantine the elderly 
and we're going to all have to also ultimately quarantine people with um, immune issues. The rest of us are going to go out into the world, and many of us will get COVID, and most of us won't die of it, and we're going to continue. That's the only way I see this from a practical standpoint playing out. What are your thoughts? It could. Um, I think the legal uh, ability to, in quotes, you're calling quarantine, you're really talking about, you know, truly isolating these individuals. I mean, what are you going to say to your grandparents? What are you going to say to someone in your family who has diabetes? 20% uh, of the American populace has diabetes. We're going to take 20% of people and uh, try to isolate them. I think that we're talking about doing things that are going to be far worse than getting the right leadership. If you want to know my prediction, Ron, I think if the president is not able to effectively manage this pandemic, we're going to have a different president in office come November. I'm not speaking politically on one side or the other. I'm just saying that the American population is looking to the commander in chief to be an effective leader. And what you're saying is our army doesn't, doesn't have leadership. How are we going to win the battle? And the answer is you can't win a battle without having effective leadership in place. Now, there are a lot of choices about how to achieve that effective leadership. I gave you some examples. There are other ways to do it. You can do it with extensive testing. I just think extensive testing is more intrusive on individuals than getting them to wear a mask. But you've got to do something. This virus is no different today than it was in March. We're seeing the hospitals in California start to get overwhelmed, as we saw the ones in New York. And as each state and community experiences this problem, the loss of trust and belief is going to grow. If I were advising the president, I would tell him right now, step forward. There are so many things you can do to gain control, not to eliminate, but to be able to coexist with this virus while revitalizing the American economy. And I think revitalizing the American spirit and avoiding the mental health issues that we're seeing grow month after month. Okay, so you've made a really good point on where we are from a health standpoint. Now I want to kind of pivot this conversation and look at it from a, through the business lens. Um, obviously, um, this has had a devastating effect on the economy. Let's put on your Stanford Business School hat now. Um, first of all, how do you see this playing out from a business standpoint? You've made clear how you know what you think is going to happen health health wise. How is this going to impact the businesses? Great question, Ron. I think it's going to have both a short-term and a long-term impact, and they're somewhat different. The short-term will be dependent upon how well we respond in the ways that we've discussed to minimizing the amount of transmissibility while maximally opening our businesses, by which I mean, again, the 80-20 rule. But Regardless of what we do in the short run, I'm actually optimistic that from an economic standpoint, in the long run, we're going to come out of this very strong. And I say that because we're seeing CEOs reporting that they recognize 
that the global economy is not going to go back where it was very soon. So they're looking to take business from their competitors. They're doing that by figuring out how can they diminish the number of employees they have, which is leading them to technology, artificial intelligence, variety of online, better services. You can see it in healthcare with telemedicine booming in place. Those opportunities are being seized by CEOs. As one said to me the other day, Ron, he said, I was able to achieve in three months from an HR perspective what it would have taken me three years to do. I think we have the opportunity to come out of this with a much better, stronger economy. Having said that, what will happen is that more people will get left behind. The days of 4% unemployment are not coming back. I think we're going to see significantly higher unemployment, greater gaps in society, issues with disease coming out of what's called the social determinants. We've already seen it in the coronavirus. The poor African-Americans, other groups with four times the mortality. I think the successful businesses are going to come out far ahead. As you well know, you're an expert in disruption. Disruption always leaves the weaker businesses behind, but it leaves the stronger ones being that much more powerful. I think that that's going to be the outcome a year to two years from now. So I live in Chicago and I used to live in New York and there's a lot of tall buildings with elevators. Um, so how, with these businesses, when they get go back, um, first of all, would you feel comfortable going into an elevator now with one or two other people? That's number one. And then number two, you know, medium and long term, if we haven't found a vaccine for this, how are these businesses who are in these large office buildings, how does that, how does that work? I would not feel comfortable going in an elevator unless people had masks on. That's the form of transmission. So if they're not going to have it, if I'm standing there in the elevator and they sneeze in my face, cough in my face, and they have the virus, I'm going to get it. And I don't want to get it. Now, I'm assuming, by the way, I'm not wearing an N95 medical mask. And yes, if I have a, a cloth mask on, I diminish transmission. But I would want that elevator to require that everyone have a mask on it. That's what happens in the businesses where I go right now. Why shouldn't that happen in those ele elevators? If the elevators are gonna have it, what I said yesterday, I spoke to the New York Stock Exchange yesterday, and what I said to them is that every CEO has to ask him or herself about that individual business. Don't look for a single answer. If you're just as productive with your employees working virtually, why bring them back? In fact, why be paying all that rent and other high costs? If, you, if there is a segment of your business that is not that successful virtually, but other parts are, maybe some of the design group needs to be in person, why not bring those people back? Let the other ones who are doing just as well stay home and maybe they need to be there two days a week. And maybe they don't need to fly everywhere where they've been flying in the past. These are the kinds of 80-20 principles that need to happen, the segmentation that needs to happen. And again, I believe that every business can go to its optimal point of performing. And what I mean by that 
And we're seeing this right now. You know, Amazon was a really great example. You would have predicted it would do remarkably well in this era of everyone ordering things at home. And yet at a bottom line level, it cost them $4 billion for the healthcare needs of their, of their people. That's how the CEOs need to be thinking. I've got to balance the risk of someone getting sick and I don't have them at work for a couple of weeks versus the opportunity to bring them back. And in those situations where the opportunity is great enough, I have to ask myself, how do I maximally protect them with the masks, the distancing, the testing, the hand washing, and I accomplish that by shifting my business model. And Ron, again, what I'm going to say is the new business model of the future will be significantly better than the one of the past. I told a group yesterday, you're never going to again walk into an airport and go directly to the gate like we used to do before we had 9-11. And I'll say the same thing about businesses. Businesses will never function the same way they functioned before, not necessarily worse, just different. And CEOs need to be thinking about how do I want to make these changes happen to protect the health of my people and to protect the health of my business. And I think the two are very compatible. Yeah, so I'm, I'm in my 50s. And I, it, to me, it doesn't make that big of a difference. But if I'm 25 years old, um, and I'm working at a company, I need a mentor. I need culture. I need that. I don't need it today, but I needed it 25 years ago. So how does that play out in your opinion? To me, it's again, the same principles. That's why this podcast you're doing is so powerful and important for people to hear. All right, you're the CEO. You decide you need to create mentorship relationships. Mentors can be wearing masks. They can sit six feet apart. They can be out walking because we know the transmission is much less on the outside than it is in the inside. The worst place is in a conference room. How do I bring them together if bringing them together is important? But now consider another possibility. Maybe actually it's better to have them talk by phone or talk by video for 20 minutes three times rather than an hour together in person. This is the kind of analysis and I fear there's a paralysis happening amongst business leaders who say, I'm not a doctor. Well, the principles are pretty straightforward. You don't need to be a doctor to understand the ways to minimize the risk. And once you do that analysis, you can come up with the solutions rather than the idea of just having people generally be around each other and somehow learning through osmosis. So let me ask you a question. I mean, look, we're, we're social beings, right? I mean, that's the way we're, we, we're wired. And I could look at Zoom videos and you could argue, you could say the same thing, you could see the same people the same way. It's just not the same. So just from, from your lens, from a psychological standpoint, what kind of impact does this, does this make? Because you know, we, are, we were not meant to be isolated in our homes and communicate. We were meant to be around human beings. So how does that play out? I've never said people should shelter at home. Some people need to protect themselves, yes, because they're at tremendously high risk. I've just said they need to do things that are reasonable and logical. You know, we have a lot of urges. You know, you, people, some people think we're violent creatures and we have to figure out how not to harm others. It's just a different social norm. There's a book that I'm writing right now 
on the on physician culture and culture are just the ways we grow up the things we learn to do there are parts of this world right now where people feel actually more comfortable wearing masks than not wearing masks i'm not saying we should be distant from people i'm just saying that we should be wise when we're around them you don't have to have people elbow to elbow at a bar rather than sitting at an outdoor place six feet apart from the tables drinking the same beer they would drink inside. So what happens about to football, basketball, baseball games? I think that professional sports are not going to return back to arenas until there is a vaccine. I think the risk will be too great. We saw it at the Mardi Gras when we saw New Orleans being overwhelmed. We've seen it in Boston when they had a conference and brought a lot of people together. Whether we want to play it or not, interesting, later today I'm going to be a sports talk show speaking about the idea of the Major League Baseball and basketball seasons resuming in later in July. And my message to them is going to be very straightforward. If you resume play, people will get sick. If they get sick, some of them will get very sick. You should not reopen unless you're prepared to accept that. I'm not telling you whether to open or not to reopen. I actually think it makes sense. These are professional athletes who make their living wanting, playing and wanting to play, and most of them are in very, very good health. But don't open everything back up, and then when people get sick, close it back down, anticipate it, think about it. The virus is consistent. It's people who are illogical and inconsistent. There's so much money involved in sports. And if they don't find a vaccine for three, four years, which is what you say may happen, um, I, I just can't see, and I'm, I'm looking at it through the layperson's pers perspective, I, I can't see no baseball, no basketball, no football with, without fans for three to four years. I, I can't see that. But what's your thought? I think you need to look at the business model. Um, now, if you want to talk purely from a business perspective, take everything out of the equation, it's not inconceivable to me they will come up with ways and variations of online gaming that will be even more profitable than selling the hamburgers and hot dogs in the stands. I think you're absolutely right that when you're looking at it from a purely economic perspective, they're not going to not resume the season. The pro athletes are not going to forego getting paid the money. This is their livelihood. They've got to be able to do that. And I'm sure the government checks don't cover their contractual obligations. So I think it will be a different world. But to have events where there's going to be not an Arnold of three, but an Arnold of 10 or 15 or 20, to have a lot of people becoming sick and then have to have the community lock you back down, that would be the worst. I mean, imagine if you start the season having come out of the coronavirus problem and now have to shut everything back down again, Ron. It doesn't make sense. I just can't see institutions, professional and college, being able to reopen with full sets of fans and then be castigated for the spike in incidents that not might happen, that will happen only because the virus is so predictable. So what happens, uh, when can I go to a movie? In a, in a movie theater? Well, a movie you can go sooner. 
You just can't go with as many people packed together. So the movies are going to have to shift. That's what I'm trying to say. This is going to be a new normal. It's going to be different. It's like saying, well, when can I go to the airport and just walk to the gate? You're not going to be able to, but you can fly. So it may be that you're going to be every third seat or every second seat. It may be that a lot more people go on Tuesday night and Thursday night because they work from home those days. And it is a Saturday or Sunday equivalent. This is going to be a new evolution. It's not a small step. It's going to be a major change. And I think your model is right. I mean, at some point, the other thing that probably will happen is what's called herd immunity. 200 million Americans will have gotten it if the, vi the vaccine is not here. We still can't be sure that that immunity will be effective or for how long. But at some point, the virus does die out when so many people have already been exposed uh, to it. But it will be a while getting there. And I think the changes that are going to happen in our society by then will actually be the ones that we do. And I keep going back to this medical one of um, video visits. I don't know if you've had one, but you know, doctors who six months ago said I would never do one, it's terrible medical care, are now saying it's great. Patients who are saying, well, I really want to see the doctor in person are saying, why well, would I ever want to see the doctor in person unless they need to do something to me? give me an injection or, uh, or palpate a particular organ. If 70% of the time I can solve the problem virtually, it's so much more convenient. Why would I ever want to drive there, wait there, get seen, miss work? This is so much better. I'm not saying that you know, betting on sports rather than being in the arenas is going to be better. But I am saying that we will have a new normal set of ways that our society functions. Ones to make your point, Ron, that allow us to be social animals, to do things together. It's just going to be different. I mean, think about how many people play fantasy sports and love it and feel like they're in a group accomplishing that. That didn't exist 20 years ago. We're going to see this evolution and for your listeners thinking about how do I invest, what are the companies, what are the businesses, get ahead of the curve. Ask yourself, what's this new normal going to look like three or five years from now? How do I invest and create the industries that people are going to want at that time? Who would have thought that gaming would now be larger than pro sports with more people involved and huge tournaments? This was something that no one even thought of as a sport a few years ago. It was a computer nerd. Now it's a sport. How do we do that? Who would have thought about Peloton doing exercise devices in your home? The opportunities are massive. I think anyone who sees this pessimistically is looking short-term. Long-term are the opportunities to make changes happen. As I said, as the CEO said to me, in a short amount of time, that otherwise would have taken 10 or 30 times longer. Yeah, but the, I, I, I hear what you're saying and, and I don't disagree with it, but the pushback I would give is I work out, I like to go to a gym. I like to be with people. It's, I, I like to, the social interaction of it, it's a different experience than Peloton, which definitely makes sense. Um, when are gym, how, how do you see gyms going forward and also, restaurants and bars you know i've got a couple friends who own restaurants i think they need close to 75 percent capacity in order to start making money and right now that you could only do 50 so if it's 50 percent capacity from a business standpoint 
they cannot make it. So what happens in your opinion to restaurants, bars, and health clubs? It's going to be a new way of doing business. So health clubs will have fewer people in it and machines that are more spread out. Okay, well, that's less, prof that's less profitable though. That's less profitable. And so they're gonna need to figure out how do they, in the context of this new normal, so that's what we keep getting back to. If you make the assumption that the only thing that changes is the health club, it can't succeed. But if two days a week, people are working from home virtually, if the hours they work are different, then why are health clubs basically 5 to 7 a.m., 6 to 8 p.m. and weekends? Why don't we have health clubs easily available during the day? How do we spread more people out? You know, if you look at the typical business, it's only utilized a small fraction of the time. You look at a restaurant volume, what you see is that it's very high on Friday nights and Saturday nights, and it's empty during the week. How do we spread that out? Now, if you tell me it's impossible to do that, then the answer is gonna be, this kind of businesses are gonna go out of existence and we'll have fewer clubs. But I think it's not impossible. What about bars and, you know, yeah, bars and clubs? I mean, these are what the, the you know, 20s and 30s, that's what they do. What about that? They're gonna have to shift. Go to New York City right now. It's fascinating. I don't know if you've been there lately. Essentially, they're closing roads and restaurants are now on the sidewalks and in the streets, taking care of customers. They're taking care of a relatively equivalent volume. They've just spread out the geography more. In the old rules, they couldn't succeed. And now the city's closing blocks at a length and people are having an amazing time. You go to places in Europe, you see the outdoor cafe is the central place they gather. That opportunity exists now. I mean, I don't want to make it sound like this is easy, Ron. This is a, you know, again, I use the word disruption. Disruption is a very traumatic, gut-wrenching experience. That's what we're going through right now. But the restaurants will look very different. The parking lots will become tables, not where you put your car. Transportation will have to change as a consequence of doing that. The days of the week and the hours of the night are gonna all change. It's possible restaurants will just also raise their prices for limited availability exactly how they're gonna solve it. I can't give you that particular answer because each place will be different, but I can imagine there being equally successful, not using the old model, but the new model, spacing out the distance, changing the hours, creating the incentives to bring people in and leveraging off everything else that's happening. That's the point I wanna make. If people are working from home, if they're not driving someplace, all of a sudden demand for restaurants in New York has changed dramatically because a third of the people are not sitting in that city working all day looking for a bar at the end of the day. Let me ask you this. So we both teach at Stanford. Um, right now, how do, how do colleges, what, what, what's the future of colleges? Well, you probably know, Stanford's announced at the undergraduate level, what they've announced what they're gonna do is they're gonna only bring half of the students back in person and the other half virtually. Now, again, you have to evaluate how good is virtual learning, how much should they charge for virtual learning, but they're not gonna be able to have 
business as usual come the fall semester. I'm still waiting to hear from the business school whether you and I will be teaching virtually or they'll be teaching in person. I think a, a in-person is far better, both in terms of the interaction, and as you say, the mentorship sits, that sits in place. And so they're gonna have to figure out how to structure that. So are, are, are parents gonna pay 85 grand for their kids to go to Stanford and, and um, take classes online? They might now, but what's gonna happen there, in your opinion? Let's take colleges in general, all right? You know, one of the big things right now in society is college debt. I can't remember how big the number is, but it's huge and massive in the trillions of dollars. Why should college cost $40,000 a year? How do we provide it that same level? It costs like $80,000 a year for all right. college. I mean, I was thinking about state schools, all right? All right. Why should it cost so much? Why can't we do two-thirds of what we do in person virtually. A third needs to be in person, but why can't we do two thirds of it virtually? Why does the professor have to record the same lecture every time, every year? Why doesn't he or she do it like a masterclass that, we, that you, know, you, can, you can get online and make it be so good, so perfect that students can learn so much and review at their own pace and time. How do we rethink American education? That to me is what we should be doing right now in the throes of the coronavirus pandemic. Okay, well, I've got a 19 year old who's a freshman at Michigan and I'm telling you when she takes classes online, I'm not gonna say it's a joke, but I'm saying it is not even, not even close to what it's like to, to do it in person. And I just can't see um, education. And, and then you go to the, the younger, not just colleges, you go, you know, get down to the grammar schools and because these are, these schools are going to have to open. How, how does, how do these social, we need to socialize. How do, how does a school, how do schools work? Grammar schools, high, junior high schools, high schools. What do you see there? I keep going back to this notion of this Pareto principle. What are the things that are getting 80% of the value that needs to be done in person, the 20% of things, and what are the things that we can do differently? I mean, you can say it's, it's a joke, but if I'm a teacher and I can make my classes pretty rigorous, and if your daughter wants to not get an F in my class, now a lot of universities, a B is considered an F. No, 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 no. In my classes, you get an F if you don't do the things that are necessary. And I'm gonna tell you the things you need to do. And I can't say whether they're listening to the lectures is, is the right thing to do. Now, what you're saying is that college has a lot more pieces to it. There are parts that are in person and they also have to be accommodated. But every time we say it can't work because the old rules will stop it, my answer is what's gonna disappear are the old rules sitting there. So how does your, how does your daughter spend time backpacking with classmates, figuring out wilderness survival skills, how do they actually, rather than studying cases about team collaboration, go into the wilderness and have to survive in a team collaborative kind of way? I think that experience could be 10 times better than reading the case study. We just have not evolved in medicine, in education, in a lot of our models for 50 years, 100 years, for a long time. Now is the opportunity to do so. And those who lead, 
And that's why your audience is so key, Ron, because they're the ones who are going to have to lead this process. Those who lead have opportunities they haven't had in 50 years. And those who resist and lag are going to be left behind. And you raise a great point because in the public, the, the public's not going to do this. It's going to be the private sector. So you look at what, Mike, what um, uh, Michael Bloomberg's done. You look at what Bill Gates has done. You look at what a lot of these philanthropists have done. How much of this cure uh, solution is going to come from the private sector, from the family office world, in your opinion, versus the government? I think most of it will come from the private world. Uh, obviously, my big focus is healthcare. And one of the points that I am driving around is getting people to say, what's going to happen a year from now? I mean, your, your audience is very sophisticated. The government will have accrued $8 trillion of additional debt. They're going to have to pay interest on that money. They're going to have to uh, face the consequences in terms of the borrowing rate if they can't demonstrate their ability to pay that money back. They're going to have to constrain expense at the federal level. At the state level, every state by law has to have a balanced budget. They're going to have diminished revenue, whether it's the businesses that close, the businesses that cut back, whatever it's going to be. They're going to have to find ways to cut expenses. The small businesses, the ones that are still alive, will have spent through their savings. They're going to have to find ways. Even the big businesses are going to have to find ways to survive. Everyone is going to have economic pressure on them. And now what is that going to do? From my perspective as a healthcare leader, it's going to force down the cost of healthcare. We've talked about this for 50 years. It should happen, it must happen. No, the answer is it will happen, not because anyone says it has to or should happen. They're gonna, it's going to be because people can't afford to pay any more. And now when you say you can't afford to pay any more, now people are going to look at solutions that didn't meet their radar before. Fee-for-service will die. We're going to move from fee-for-service to capitation. Why is that? Because in a fee-for-service world, you can simply do well by raising prices and driving more volume, regardless of what happens. In a capitated world, you focus on prevention, disease management, avoidance of complications. We've known this for a long time. No one's wanted to do it. Now they'll have no choice. We're going to move from fragmentation to integration. Why is that? Because a fragmented model can't be as efficient as an integrated model. Every business knows this. It's called economies of scale. We're going to have to make that movement. The things we've been talking about, actually since 1932, when the first white papers were written on this, through Nixon and the HMO, through Clinton, through Obama, through Trump, it doesn't matter who you support. Every president has pushed us in this direction. The physician culture, the AMA has blocked it. Now they will not be able to do that because people simply will not have the money to pay. They might want it, but they can't afford it. And now they're going to require something that is less expensive and healthcare will change. And in that process, it will, it will invest in technology, things like video that make care higher quality, more convenient, and far less expensive. We're going to see an explosion in this arena going forward. Robert, you've been, this has been, I literally can speak 
all day on this with you, uh, but, but we have to wrap it up. Um, you've been fantastic, and I think you've added a tremendous amount of value to our listeners. If somebody wants to get a hold of you, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, they can check my web page, my website, which is robertpearlmd.com, um, or they can actually get a hold of me directly through my email. The, the best way to do it is drrobertpearl, drrobertpearl at gmail.com. This has really been fun, and you've been a fantastic guest. Thank you very much for this. Um, you've been, it's been a wonderful, wonderful experience. So thanks for your time. Greatly appreciated. Ron, thank you so much. And I really want to commend you for organizing this group and helping the people who actually have the ability to make a difference if they can get ahead of the curve and actually control the coronavirus not let it control their lives. Thank you very much, Robert. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on Family Office World. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, rate it five stars and leave a review. Join us again next time for another episode of Family Office World. Thank you and have a great week.